Welcome to a special Valentine's Day episode of the Left Behind Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Markovich. On this special episode, political memes. What use are they in Canadian politics? What do we use them for? And are they effective? I speak with political professors, Brandon Tazo and Catherine Sullivan, about the effectiveness of political memes. And later in the show, I speak with platinum recording artist Biff Naked about her upcoming album and new business venture known as Mona Lisa Healing. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. I got you all a special gift for this special day, an episode about political memes. Oh, and an interview with some musician named Biff Naked. You might have heard of her. Anyway, stick around. And don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon page and spread the word about the podcast. As for me, I'm going to relax all weekend long and come back next week with a brand new episode of the show. Have a great long weekend, everyone. Enjoy! Joining me now on the show is a Trent University professor in political science, Brandon Tazo. He is also the creator of a Facebook page known as Game Changers, in which he uses political satire through memes to communicate with leftist and socialist followers all across Canada and indeed around the world as well. Brandon Tazo, thank you for joining me on the show today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Chris. So I want to talk first about your um, career in academia and how you've been teaching your classes. I follow you on Twitter, and I noticed in the last year or so, you've been incorporating memes a lot more into your classes. Tell me a bit about what started that path and how your students have reacted to that. Uh, Well, it started kind of innocently enough is... uh few years ago, I was asked to teach a course on methodology. Uh, so, you know, statistics and uh, interview techniques and things like that. And it's kind of, if anyone's ever taken a methodology course, it's kind of the, the most boring, uh, you know, you want to sleep through it or skip a course out there. And it's it posed a real challenge to kind of get students' attention, keep their attention. And I realized while teaching the course is I have a kind of talent for making memes. So all of the, the, the memes that, and the sort of talent that I, I had started really, I started incorporating them in methodology classes to sort of explain political science methods. Uh, and I, I found that the reaction to students was just they, they adored them, they got them, and, and they it really kind of enhanced the material, like they referenced them throughout their papers a bit, and it kind of helped the material home. Uh, that like blending of humor and um you know, politics and, and knowledge really, really, really kind of just ironed in their brains. And I, I was, I, all of my teaching evaluations through the years was like, great class, love the memes, needs more memes, love the memes. And I was like, okay, I think I'm onto something. So I started really incorporating them generally in class, in my cl- the classroom setting. I uh, just, you know, throwing one here and there to describe you know, liberalism, Marxism, and conservatism. Uh, and again, uh, the response has just been fantastic. I think that the 
humor really does connect on on a different level with uh, with undergraduates and with people in general. Uh, and I started sort of taking that and just posting them on the left wing Facebook pages, and it kind of they just some of them have really blown up. Uh, but yeah, it it that's really the the, the uh, origin stories to them. Now, among those memes uh, in particular of interest to me, as you know, and as some of our mutual followers may know as well, you do a lot of Simpsons memes. And I've been a fan of The Simpsons since they first started in 1987 on The Tracy Ullman Show. Tell us a little bit about your love of The Simpsons and what inspired you to use them in your memes. Well, I again, I, I've loved them since they really kind of started in on The Tracy Ullman Show in 1989 when they uh, really started on, ma- on mainstream TV. Like, I think it, they tap into a common basis of knowledge and reference that everybody sort of between the age of 45 and 30 or even a bit younger, no. Uh, and Chris, I think you and I both had the same experiences. We grew up with the Simpsons. They were common phrases that everyone knows and, and everyone watched them. Uh, it, it, uh, the contemporary analogy, I would say, is they're probably the equivalent to Game of Thrones. Everybody watched Game of Thrones and they really were the zeitgeist of, of the contemporary time. And they, they were in the 1990s for most of us uh, 90s kids, and they've been etched in our brain ever since. Uh, and uh, and uh, they've, they've become, I think, really kind of easily memeable because everybody kind of gets them, and then they lend themselves through satire very easily to uh, political references and political satire as well. Uh, so it, it just sort of naturally what I go towards uh, – I just will suddenly think of an idea and then I'm like, oh, that's something I could pervert, in some weird way pervert the Simpsons uh, analogy too. And they seem to, it, when it works well, it seems to really connect with people around sort of our, our age group. Uh, and I'll be interested to see with the uh, Disney Plus now coming on and all the Simpsons episodes now readily available if it'll start to become more uh, identifiable with younger people as well. Uh, people, you know, Generation Z, if they'll start referencing The Simpsons more regularly and getting the memes uh, much more. I think I've noticed that even in the past month or two since uh, Disney Plus has come out. Uh, but I just think it's it's such a common frame that we all know. and It's so easy to reference. And uh, on that note, uh, do your students get any of the references, political or otherwise? Uh, it's hit and miss. Some things go over really well. And some things don't. Like, I'll be like, oh, this is really funny. They're going to really get this one. And I'll get like a bunch of blank stares because the reference will just be too old. Uh, and then I'll do something else and it'll, t- they'll, I'll get a bunch of laughs out of it. Uh, so, and, and I'd say the same is true for online. Like, I'll come up with something where I'm like, oh, this is really going to be funny. Uh, and nothing. And it won't get any shares or any likes. And then I'll come up with something where, I just kind of think of it off the top of my head and it explodes and it gets thousands of shares. So you never really know what's going to touch with people. It, it just is, you just kind of have to keep trying. So what in your uh, experience so far has been the best meme that resonated with the most people and conversely, the meme that got absolutely no reaction whatsoever or very little? So, uh, Two of the memes I did were covered on CBC as perverting democracy, and that was kind of fun. Uh, one of them was there was a one with uh, Maxime Bernier and Andrew Scheer pointing at each other, and I put uh, the two Spider-Men pointing at each other, and that was covered on CBC. Uh, that one, I think, has blown up the most. It just was 
copied by a bunch of other lefty sites and they just shared it, shared it, shared it, shared it, shared it. Uh, and it was covered on a bunch of news websites as well. And I think that I, I, that's pretty much gone all over the place. Um, yeah. And that had its origins with me. I just kind of took a screen capture of that debate and, uh, suddenly I'm just like, Oh, I have them both pointing it to it. This is going to be funny. That one blew up and I had no idea. I was just like, Oh, I, I, I just sort of like offhanded. I made a bunch of them over the, the debates and that one just really took off and blew up. Um, some of the other ones that I have, uh, you, you know, I produce so many, it's kind of just some of them just don't really do much. Like, uh, I made one about Homer in uh, Braft, and it's like we have neoliberalism is slowly eating away at the welfare state. And I thought, oh, that one's going to really blow up. And it's just like him nibbling away uh, at like, you know, union rights and environmental regulations and teachers' pensions, and it didn't go anywhere. And I thought that was really funny uh, because I thought that was really touching on a really kind of entertaining, you know, combination of The Simpsons. But again, the stuff I find funny doesn't always pay play off. It doesn't always take off. So it's kind of just like you hit, miss, and see what which one really kind of goes far and which ones don't. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 there's, it's very hard to predict which would people find entertaining. So being that uh, some of your memes have garnered some national attention in the media, have any political parties uh, reached out to you to um, hire you as their kind of political meme magician? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no. Why do, you, uh, why do you think that is? Uh, I don't think political parties have a sense of humor. I, I, I don't think they kind of get it or they don't quite understand it. Uh, I, I, I think like the conservatives, they sort of rely on third parties to spread it, but I don't think they want to devote resources to it. And I'll, like, I'll be kind of honest. I think memes are entertaining, but I don't think they change minds. I don't think they, they tend to sway voters. Um, you know, I, I I'm going to, you know, I, I think that they find them entertaining, but, you know, I don't know if anybody, I honestly don't think it's worth resources, uh, contrary to some of the attention that they've gotten, because um, my political scientist has going to be here. So I don't know if they actually changed anybody's mind who isn't already convinced. So uh, I think that they tend to sort of re- reiterate people's already pre-existing prejudice, but I don't think anyone's going to look at a meme and be like, okay, well, uh, that convinced me I'm changing my, my vote and my mind there. Um so I think with scarce resources, especially from left-wing parties, they just don't have the money to do that. So let's talk now about um, Game Changers, the uh, Facebook page that you set up and you're working on in collaboration with uh, Tom Parkin. You said that, um, that you're working on most of the memes themselves and Tom Parkin is doing more of the commentary on that page. Uh, talk a little bit, uh, if you can, about Game Changers and uh, what facilitated that. Yeah, it really was kind of a random conversation. Uh, Tom Parkin, who writes for the Toronto Sun and a few other media outlets, uh, contacted me sort of randomly and was like, hey, your memes are hilarious. Would you want to team up with me? I'm doing this Game Changers. And it's a mixture of podcasts and commentary and media stuff. And he's like, I just I can't, don't really make memes. And I was like, okay. And it's been a project. And the, 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 uh, we've just been sort of going at it since slightly before the election and uh we've got i've got a few other people to contribute memes so i i'd say like uh i'm probably the top memer but uh, a few other people have contributed as well and it's just been kind of taking off a bit 
you know, relative to where we started, it was only, it's only been a few months, but I'm quite happy to see it gain some attention. Um, especially we, you know, we usually get about anywhere between 30,000 and, uh, 90,000 views a, uh, a week, which is not bad for considering, you know, it's only, you know, it launched it in August. Um, and especially since the election, I think it's some of the memes have just really blown up and some of the material have, has really blown up, but I kind of just was serendipitous and I just enjoyed kind of having a different platform to spread my, uh, memory. Now for the memes themselves, what sort of content do you focus on or is it mostly just topical, i.e. political uh, events around the world? Yeah, uh, it really, the thing about memes is it's really just about staying current and trying to comment on something that's topical. Um, it, it's kind of hard to build a larger narrative because they're just little, you know, for lack of a better word, little uh, cartoons of, of, of things. So it is really just paying attention to the news and finding an inspiration to kind of link it up with something funny and entertaining. Like it's a, it's a level of, it's a, a type of, of satire and satire I think is always best when it's new and it's fresh. Um, so yeah, it, it, it really is just like paying attention. If there's interesting news in Ontario, making fun of, you know, uh, Doug Ford, or if there's funny things coming out of Ottawa, kind of try to make fun of that. Uh, but yeah, it, it really kind of, it's just trying to make it as quick as possible and as relatable as possible. Uh, and I just tr- hoping kind of it spreads and that's it. Like it's kind of, it's fascinating when you, I post something and check an hour later and I'm like, Oh wow, 500 people have shared this. Like <laughs> who did, who the thought, <laughs> but yeah, it, it really is. It's just paying attention to the news. Brandon Tazo, a political science professor at Trent University, online political commentator, as well as meme magician extraordinaire. You can find him online on Twitter at Brandon Tazo. Also, you can find him on their uh, Facebook page, uh, Game Changers, at facebook.com forward slash Game Changers. Thank you so much for being on the show today and have yourself a great evening. Thank you for having me. Coming up. I speak with political science professor Catherine Sullivan about her research into the use of social media and political memes in municipal politics and beyond. And later in the show, Biff Naked's new single, Jim, is about loss and betrayal. But what does the rest of the album have in store for her loyal listeners? I find out this and more from Vancouver's own punk rock superstar, Biff Naked. Joining me on the show now is Catherine Sullivan. She's a political science PhD student at the University of Montreal. She has uh, published an article on the use of Twitter by political candidates during the 2014 Quebec elections and a particular interest uh, in the platform's e-democratic potential. She's currently working on several projects focusing on municipal political actors in Canada, including a case study of the use of Twitter by eight mayoral candidates during the 2017 municipal elections in Montreal. Uh, thank you for very much for joining us on the show today, Catherine. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So I wanted to first ask you about what got you into politics uh, and what specifically got you interested in social media studies and politics. Oh boy. Now that is a big question. Um, I actually have a very strange professional timeline, meaning that I'm actually a classically trained professional violinist. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I did uh, a deck or DC. So uh, my CIGIP, 
as we do in Quebec in yep. theatre, <laughs> my undergrad degree in music, and then my master's in communications. <laughs> wow, that's quite the uh, educational background and, the, and quite the path you took. Yeah, anyways, long story short, um, uh, music is a really, really hard life. And I liked having my weekends. But I mean, now I realize that due to PhD was not the best option for having weekends. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. But it's still rewarding, I would imagine. Oh, it is. It is. Um, so then I was looking for other types of careers. I worked as a journalist. And I figured, hey, this is fun. I like writing. I like meeting people. So I did my master's in comms, where I was talking about having masses public sphere and this uh, back then how far? that was like five years ago um social media was still pretty up and coming like it wasn't as established as it is today in a day-to-day -day life so talking about a uh, digital public sphere was still kind of a big deal and that's how i got into politics and social media actually it was just random events that kind of make sense in the end so then um, with the 2017 mayoral election, um, how did the case study uh, go and what did it reveal about what the candidates use the social media platforms for and how they engage voters? <laughs> Actually, I did that kind of on the side for fun. Uh, it hasn't been published or anything. It was kind of to test what I'm doing right now. So I looked at Valérie Plante's and Denis Collard's tweets for uh, for the campaign, and I realized that the kind of cool thing is that they both had similar ideas, but they were presented differently, meaning that they were both kind of producing a digital image of themselves as being very proud of the city of Montreal, but then Valérie Plante would do it kind of by dressing up as Mary Poppins on Halloween, inviting all the children, come say hello. And then Denis Godard would do it as being involved, but differently, meaning that he would wait for the runners at the end of the marathon with other public figures. So very different types of, pr of pride and of uh, involvement. <laughs> and uh, there's also this other type of uh, political communication strategy, which I hadn't really noticed before, which was uh, a, a cherry picking of the news to create a nicer image of oneself, meaning that Denis Coderre would publish a lot of articles that said that he was a good politician, that he should be reelected, something that Federico Plante did, but not to that degree. Meaning that if I was a citizen, not too interested in politics, but Denis Coderre is my man, and I only followed him. I would think that all the media and all the public personalities in Montreal thought that he was the best mayor we could have. So that's pretty much what I found. <laughs> so when you looked at some of those tweets and some of the uh, folks that engaged uh, the mayoral candidates, um, what did you find was kind of the overall trend as far as what people were saying about the candidates? Oh, I actually looked at what they published and not so much as what other people were saying. Um, because the only comments I saw were retweets by uh, the two mayoral candidates. And they were usually very nice and pleasant things. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. Um, so have, did you follow on social media the last federal election uh, to any certain degree? And if so, what did you notice about the social media accounts of the political leaders federally? 
Oh, yes, I, of course I followed. But it was kind of like a, a train crash. You can't look away. You just keep... Anyways, so I followed what they were doing on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram uh, out of curiosity. And I also kind of looked at their tweets for a while. I was especially curious to see what people were saying online, which also was a reflection of their strategy. For example, during the French debate on TVA, which was only shown in uh, Quebec, uh, you could see that the liberal team had a lot more people online who were all retweeting and tweeting the same things and talking about Trudeau uh, compared to the other teams. Um, also, Elizabeth May is the one who tweeted the most out of all political leaders, which is kind of an interesting and strange fact. It was the least professional type of political communication strategy. It was retweets of anything and everything that had to do with the environment, whereas if you looked at the liberal tweets, there was clearly a theme every day, like today's the economy, tomorrow's families. And then, oh, here are two tweets about the environment, one in French, one in English, and then carry on. <laughs> so uh, I think that's what I, I, I noticed the most. And uh, when it comes to um, parties using social media, uh, in particular, we saw the team for the NDP using TikTok for the first time. What do you make of their choice to use TikTok in the election? And do you think it actually had any impact? I think it's very smart. Um, academic research is very slow and late compared to popular culture, meaning that we're always behind. So I think that political leaders choosing to go on what is currently very trending and hot is a great way to influence young voters, young potential voters, but also their family, because of course, teenagers will want to talk about it with their friends. And one of the best ways of influencing someone is as an opinion leader, or just through socialization, which is talking about politics at dinner. So then uh, going into um, what's current and what is, you know, uh, trendy out there, what do you think uh, or do you have any opinions on what the next big craze will be for social media? Will it be TikTok? Will it continue to be Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Or is there something else out there that people aren't talking about yet? Oh, good question. There's so many platforms right now that it's really difficult to tell. And you have those subcultures of social media, which is very cool because not the same people who use, let's say, Tumblr will be on Reddit. And yet when you think about it, it's still kind of the same level of geekiness, but there's a different flavor to it. Uh, so currently, I think TikTok is the important thing. There's currently a, a leadership race for the Quebec uh, Liberal Party. I was actually talking about this with a colleague today. And I was like, oh, it'd be fun to look at their tweets online. And he was like, no, 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 no. Twitter is dead. It's so 2010. Now they're on TikTok. He's like, oh, okay, but how do we scrape the data? Can I do those R's? Like, no. They're too smart. You can't get their data. You just have to kind of watch it and remember. <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. It reminds me a lot of uh, what Vine used to be. I think the the same oh, developers yeah. that made Vine also made TikTok, but now it's you know fifteen seconds rather than six seconds. Yep. Um, but uh, if that's the case, if we can't get the uh, the data from it, then how how is anyone going to be able to? you know, boost those um, posts or to use that data for uh, political polling? I, I'm assuming I don't use TikTok myself. I just know of it. Um, 
I think as a user, if you have a professional account, you can probably have that data like we have on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, if you're an influencer or some kind of business. But I'm assuming here, I don't know. Okay. Um, and part of what you uh, do in your analysis uh, sometimes can involve memes. So can you uh, tell us a little bit about um, what memes uh, do for political parties as well as, you know, what it does for our political discourse in general? <laughs> memes are such an interesting creature. Uh, it is true that in my mayor analysis, I look a little bit at memes I'm currently using it in much of more an educational approach in the course I'm teaching, but we'll get back to that. But memes, I believe, are some kind of uh, cultural anchor. We can all rally around that flag. We all understand it. And there's often an emotion that's attached to it. Uh, it can just be laughter and having, which is usually the case. Or if you look at other memes, like after Trudeau's lead is mishap, uh, there are so many memes, some very savage, as some would say, and others very light. And then as a political scientist, there's sometimes I get multiple levels of hilarity and why it was also wrong. And uh, it's very comforting, you know, knowing that everybody else or a lot of other people like me understand that. So that's kind of my, my perception of memes. Also that a lot of them are nostalgic. And the millennials are a nostalgic kind of folk. We really like going back to basics, like with the Aladdin being redone, Lion King. Uh, so it's actually a really great teaching tool, but it's also a great communication tool. When a mayor does that, I feel that it sends a message that they understand the people. Like, I, I'm, I'm one of you. It's, it's a type of vulgarized communication, I would say, especially when it's personalized to one community's uh, inside jokes. Do you think then that uh, the use of political memes is limited to the audience it's geared for? Or do you think that it could be um, broadened a little bit to be um, more like an actual targeted political message like political ads? Interesting. I think part of the flair of a meme is the fact that it's an inside joke for those who are interested by whatever the topic is. Uh, meaning that if you didn't watch Futurama and you see the meme of um, <laughs> the main character squinting his eyes, saying, uh, not sure if whatever, or, you know, if you haven't seen Futurama, it can be funny, but not, not because you know the context and you've watched the show and you fall in love with it. So I think with politicians, it's kind of similar. There's this very fine line between uh, reaching your target audience, but also uh, having your message understood. That's a big issue here. So on that note, uh, do you use a lot of those uh, political memes uh, in class? And if so, do your students get it? Ha! Um, I hope so. I'm actually teaching my class in the winter, but I've always used memes. Like, uh, I, do, I do really didn't want to say this, but like, I knew memes were cool before they were cool. <laughs> like, for example, during my master's in comms, uh, this was after I spent four years doing my undergrad in music. So I spent eight hours a day in what looks like a big fridge, a refrigerator, practicing alone. And my phone didn't work because it was in a basement. So I was totally disconnected from people. Now I'm in a program with people who study 
communicating with other people. I'm like freaking out. So my big pleasure in very boring courses, I'm sorry, like methodology, um, we had a group chat going and I would go on Google images and do deep searches of the weirdest stuff I could find. And that was like kind of the precursor to memes. And then I'd send it and I'd watch their faces, who would be grossed out, who would laugh. And then I kind of kept it as the kind of uh, communication forms people. Uh, I've noticed that other people feel that way as well, that sometimes that meme or that gif is so much more expressive than words could be. It, com it conveys a lot. And one of the things I'm studying right now is the importance of images and of text when you're trying to convey your personality, your, uh, your expression of self, basically, your self-representation. And often, if you're listening to a voice and you're watching an image, you'll remember the image much more than the voice. So I felt that for teaching, this would be a great tool uh, because I would be explaining a theory, but I use my memes wisely. For example, <laughs> you use your uh, memes uh, for good instead of evil. Yes, yes. Well, those memes, at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, for one of my classes, we're looking at uh, uh, mediatization and just the evolution of the relationship between the media and politics through time. And at some point with the rise of internet, but the very beginnings of internet and satellite TV and where there was an individualization of product and the media were working faster and faster and faster and the politicians couldn't keep up. Oh, I love this quote by Strombach who says that politicians at this point feel like they're facing a three-headed hydra, which are the media, that they just can't feed enough. So when I'm talking about that, I created a meme. It's just a still from the Hercules movie, uh, the, the old one, <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. uh, where Hercules is fighting off the Hydra, and he's running away, and he looks terrified, meaning that just with that quote, my students can remember what I was actually talking about and summarize it in an exam. I don't care if they can't quote it. If you can explain it to me, you got the concept. So do you think then the next uh, research uh, topic will be looking at... Um... Uh, memes in teaching and its effect on the learning process? I'm convinced it will be. Uh, if you look at the literature just on teaching um, and some of my colleagues who are really trying in innovative things, like they've done everything, voting in class on your phone, messaging the prof in, in uh, just personally because you don't feel comfortable enough to say it in class. Like social media is in the classroom. You just have to know how to work with it. Catherine Sullivan is a member of the Research Chair in Electoral Studies and the Center for Study of Democratic Citizenship, and she is also part of the Research Group in Political Communication. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Uh, if you want to follow Catherine Sullivan on Twitter, you can do so at Kath underscore Sully. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. <laughs> Coming up, I speak with platinum recording artist Biff Naked about her punk rock roots and her new single, Jim. Joining me now on the line is recording artist, uh, author, poet, 
artist manager, cancer survivor, and activist, Biff Naked. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. So nice of you, Chris. I'm like, wow. Well, you know what the truth is? Uh, I identify as a dog mom. Even though my dogs are both dead, I still actually <laughs> I just think I'm a dog mom. It's like being a soccer mom, only way better. Yes, that's, that's definitely true. I have two yeah. pets of my own, so I know how that is. Oh, you do? What do you have? Uh, I don't even I, know this. <laughs> I have a dog and a cat. Uh, are they best friends? Uh, not exactly, but oh. they, they, <laughs> they tolerate each other. Well, that's good. So uh, I want to start with um, talking about your new single that's coming out on Friday, Jim. Tell us about it. Well, you know, Jim is basically, it was a response song. Uh, so, you know, the, the stimuli is heartache, of course, because I love to write about things like that. Uh, I think every song that I've uh, written that's ever uh, been memorable for people is a song about overcoming like Tango Shoes or I Love Myself Today or any of these songs that, you know, kind of tell the tale of how we can move past our our sadness. And Jim is no different. Jim is definitely a villain. Um, everyone has a gem in their life. And I think that, you know, uh, we need to... Uh, we need to basically bonk him on the nose <laughs> and move on. And that's definitely what I do in the video uh, and also in the song. Now, when I listened to it, I got kind of a mid-2000s vibe from the song. In fact, um, I can't remember the name of the song specifically, but it reminds me of a Skunkanansi kind of feel to it. Oh, that's and it's, so nice. It's, I'm such a huge fan. Yeah, it was really, wow. really cool to listen to. I liked it a lot. Um, that's awesome. Um, so what's, what kind of style is the rest of the album going to look like? Uh, the album's called Champion. Uh, give us a little bit of insight as to what uh, kind of sounds we'll be expecting to listen to. Well, you know, I've been really lucky. With every record I've ever done, I've been able to do like such a eclectic mix of songs. And I think like every Generation X kid... Every kid that kind of grew up in the 90s, we like so many different kinds of music. Like, you know, we, we listen to hip hop. Uh, we listen to the birth of grunge. We still love glam rock. Punk rock will always, you know, be heavy in my life. But I don't know. There's also elements of pop, just like Spaceman was and stuff like that. So this new record has definitely got the whole spectrum once again. Um, personally, I think that I feel like this is, um, I hope anyway, everyone agrees with me. I feel very strongly about the material. I feel really emotionally attached to all of the lyrics, obviously. Some of them, I, there's a couple of tracks that we have that aren't necessarily ballads, but I cry every time I listen back because I, I just feel so deeply um the way we recorded it and I'm a real I'm so mushy in the studio so mushy I tend to just kind of put everything into into the lyric and you know the, these songs are always the same I really believe it when I'm singing it and uh, and yeah it's gonna be hopefully it'll be uh, exactly what I what I want it to be which is something that connects with everyone in a lot of the bands that you were in over the years 
you tried to bring as much of you to the band as possible, even if, you know, the, the band was already established or if um, they weren't necessarily receptive to uh, having a, a female front person. But you always wear your heart on your sleeve, whether it's in music or in your activism. So tell us a little bit about how you found your voice over the years with your music and with your activism as well. Well, you know, I think that um, they kind of go hand in hand. I was really lucky to be in a punk rock band, um, first and foremost, because a lot of the stuff that they sang about was really, you know, their socially conscious issues at the time that were bothering them or that they wanted to speak out about. Um, You know, and all the bands we liked, like Screeching Weasel is a perfect example of, uh, of a song. We used to cover this song called Leave Me Alone. And it was a song, you know, the, the uh, you know, it was like, you love alcohol, don't want to know from nothing else, can't have a good time without it, personality from a bottle, leave me alone. And it was just like, man, we believed it. It's so funny to me now. Um, but it was things that were easy to to discuss things that like meant something to us and things that we were passionate about. And I think that that really does have a, like it runs, you know, on one hand, it's a coincidence that um, the things that I'm passionate about, I also write songs about. But on the other hand, you know, there's a deliberation behind that. There's a real intention. And and I just think with, uh, with anybody, whether you're making art or whether you are trying to, um, you know, be outspoken as a hopefully socially conscious person or about just the things that matter to you and, and that affect you and you, you can, you know, share with others. I think it's the same thing. I think it's ultimately all of it is communicating your truth. I want to uh, ask you also about your activism and your um, embracing of uh, Buddhism. Uh, you talk a lot about you know living in the moment, and um, you do yoga all the time, and you obviously are in great shape. You know, so tell us a- about that journey and how you found your spiritual grounding. Well, you know, it was really an accident. So my parents, when they adopted my sister and I from India, they were missionaries, they were Christians, and they really wanted to raise us with a bit of, um, I guess, you know, always a nod uh, to our, our birthplace. And so it was not uncommon for us to celebrate lots of different holidays throughout the years, you know, um, just an interfaith little family. And when I was in high school, I I started exploring Buddhism um, as an extension almost of just some of the books that I was already reading uh, that my parents would always have around on Hinduism. Um, And it was just, it really resonated with me. It was so simple and truthfully, not all that different from Christianity or Baha'i or Sikhism or, you know, ultimately, all the religions really do lead to the same thing. They they all kind of encourage people to be kind and uh, and be nice to one another. Uh, Buddhism was, uh, it really resonated with me when I was 17, 18. Uh, one of the fellows who used to sing for Gorilla Gorilla, uh, he always, he used to meditate all the time. And I used to marvel at it. I never shut up. You know, I was like such a chatty girl uh, that I just thought, wow, that's really... You know, it's really 
a lot of self-discipline. And for me, that was what was appealing. One of my best friends uh, was a yoga instructor, probably from the age of 20 onward. And she studied Ashtanga yoga. And that was really how we started down that road. And it all went hand in hand. Um, as time wore on, a lot of the bands that we liked were, they were Hare Krishnas. And, uh, you know, in uh, New England and, and, and in New York City, in those areas, a lot of the bands were Krishna punks. And there was a, there was Krishna core, you know, kind of a, a bit of a, I don't know, uh, an extension of some of the hardcore bands, uh, scenes that we knew. So that was, you know, something that made me want to explore Hare Krishna a great deal. And it, again, it's, there's a lot of just love and just like really easy, um, positive energy uh, that is at the foundation of many of those religions. So it, it totally appealed to me. Um, me saying namaste is just basically like saying howdy. <laughs> really. I mean, it's just like, it's like howdy. Uh, it's my greeting. And I start the day. Uh, that way anyways and so when I joined Twitter in 2009 um, I was really deeply enmeshed in a yoga practice trying to overcome my breast cancer treatments and I, it, that was just kind of how I started when I started Twitter I just always um, you know kind of brought the yoga into the room and, and I still do that today I'm really silly and goofy uh, on Twitter, I, I make uh, a point never if I'm not feeling well, or if I have I have migraine, which I suffer from migraines, or if uh, or if things are busy or something, I simply won't go on social media. Uh, I'll probably never be the person that goes on social media and says I has a sad, which is what I see a lot of my girlfriends doing. I think I just saw you. You didn't have a sad. You were getting a coffee, like. It's so weird, um, but I don't know. I think that uh, stuff like Twitter, uh, I think Twitter is really good for people if they if they try and stay positive and and not uh, not take it too seriously and not take themselves too seriously. So you also have a new business venture uh, in Mona Lisa Healing. Um, they specialize in CBD oils. Um, tell us about how you got started with that and. Um, how that business venture is going. Well, you know, it just started. And uh, with CBD, uh, again, I have to go back a decade because a lot of the girls I was um, experiencing my cancer treatments with were using cannabis to mitigate a lot of their symptoms, uh, basically their side effects from the treatments, but also um, for pain relief. And there were a couple girls that were using CBD oils and, you know, and tinctures, basically. Uh, so in hindsight, you know, it was not legal, technically, uh, back then like it is now. And um, I can't say for sure what the product was that they were using because I didn't know enough about it. Um, but I didn't use any, uh, any CBD until about a year ago um, when my younger sister... Uh, was using it for her knee and also my goddaughter who has Lyme disease um, you know was on a quite a journey for almost over five years uh, trying to find a GP who uh, understood what Lyme disease was which can be very difficult if anyone knows anything about that mysterious little disease it just the symptoms keep uh, changing and it's not consistent and it's just very frustrating uh, but they had a naturopath that suggested that she try CBD oil. 
uh, to mitigate some of her side effects, and it was working for her. And so we started kind of looking into it and and exploring it a little. And of course, then a year ago, uh, cannabis was kind of legalized in Canada. And again, the government has a lot to learn, uh, as everyone does. The government has a long way to go. Uh, but I think it's really, really, really fantastic in general. You know, it is the right direction for sure. Um, CBD oils are kind of in a weird category because it's not cannabis, really. Uh, but you can't have the CBD conversation without having the cannabis conversa- conversation. Uh, you just can't really separate it. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I am not an expert. All I know is that um, the CBD oil that Mona Lisa makes uh, is just non-THC, so it's just from hemp, and um, it's just in a coconut oil, MCT coconut oil, so it's really pure and simple, Um, you know, from BC organic hemp farms, we know the farmers in the Okanagan, it's just really just, it was just a really easy thing to want to get involved in. Uh, because I do know what the what the product is, and in the in the CBD world, there's a thousand, maybe more, companies suddenly, you know, and you can get anything you want to over the internet. You really can. You can find you, there are so many lines and brands. I mean, you know, my sister's vet sells CBD oil for pets, and uh, there's really no way you can really know for sure, not really, what it what it's made from what it's made of, what's in it, you don't really know for sure. Uh, but with Mona Lisa, I, I I mean, I know where it's from and I, I know everyone involved in it. So I definitely wanted to support it. And it's changed, it's changed lives. It's changed Snake's life, um, you know, for his sleeping and even mine. I find that even just with uh, just physical things like my yoga asanas or, yeah, workouts in the gym, I've just noticed a massive difference, massive difference uh, just in my ability For more information on Mona Lisa Healing, uh, you can go to their website, MonaLisaHealing.com. The new single for Biff Naked is called Jim, and the album is called Champion. It will be released later this year. Biff Naked, thank you so much for being on the show today, and have yourself a pleasant evening. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Take care of yourself. Okay. You can catch the full-length interview with Biff Naked by subscribing to our Patreon page, at leftbehindpodcast.com.